Good morning, good morning. How are we doing? Fine, beautiful morning. Welcome to the Morning Mix. I'm your host, Ali Shapiro. And as always, there's just so too much to talk about. Too much to talk about. I'm not sure if we're going to... How we're going to divide. You know, we have two different goals, two different objectives. We also want to talk about the uh, different... 17 different executive or actions that the current administration has signed into into law. We also want to talk about the cabinet. So I think we're going to maybe we're going to do one and one each day. We'll see exactly how it plays out. This morning we're going to be talking about the new the new um, the new press secretary, Jen Jen Saki. Jen Saki, the new press secretary. Before we do that we want to welcome our our, our listeners we have some listeners who are listening on different streaming platforms from Amazon, iTunes, different streaming platforms we're located on. And we'd like to welcome them. Currently, the email address address is realtalkisrael at gmail.com. Please send us an email. We'd like to know a little bit more about our listeners. So we're very excited to expand. Jen Saki. Jen Saki. Who is Jennifer Saki? Well, she is an Obama veteran. She's an Obama veteran. And she has pledged, she has pledged to, to have a, to conduct a, um, a press, to, to the press briefings in a manner of transparency. Transparency. What's transparency mean? They throw around these terms, transparency. She says, no attacks, no lectures. And no crowd size fixation. That was a, a, a comment made about Jen Psaki's first, her first uh, press briefing. No crowd size top, top, top topics. No lectures. No attacks. Well, why would you need to be combative, right? Like most who will work. This is an article coming out of the Federalist, conservative outlet. It's going to give us a little bit of background as to exactly who Jen Psaki is. Like most who will work in a senior position for Joe Biden, his chosen White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, Jennifer Psaki, is a veteran of the Obama administration. Psaki claims her job will be to rebuild trust with the American people that the Trump White House allegedly broke. Two basic fallacies provide the foundation of this narrative. One is the false notion that the Obama administration was honest with either the press or the people underlined by looking back on the part Saki had in the lies that assisted the Iran nuclear deal. The other is the astonishing assertion that Biden and his team will be a breath of fresh air and restore transparency to American government after running among the least open and honest campaigns for the presidency in modern American political history. Should as she promises, Saki be a truly honest interlocutor between the media and the president, it would be a startling departure from the way the Biden campaign operated. The president, as my own commentary here, the president was the most transparent. If anything, there were conservatives criticized him for giving the press too much time, for being so open. He spoke too much. Maybe he did. Maybe he gave them too much time, but you can't criticize anybody for being, for not being transparent like the president. 
The president was the most transparent. He allowed them to ask any question. What happens when Joe Biden gets asked a question that's beyond what did you eat for breakfast this morning? The open antagonism and partisanship much of the pres- of the White House press corps have demonstrated since President Trump took office is unprecedented. There was a long tradition of White House correspondents being obnoxious and insistent questioners of presidents and press secretaries. But the notion that someone whose job is co- to cover the administration would consider it appropriate to debate administration spokespersons rather aggressively collect information as became routine with CNN's Jim Acosta and PBS's Yamik Alcindor and others was new. Under President Barack Obama, that partisanship took on a completely different character as many in the White House press corps blithely accepted the often duplicitous explanations his representatives dished out. The most egregious example of this was their coverage of the negotiations with Iran that led to the 2015 nuclear deal, including the effort to sell the pact to Congress and the nation. During this period, Saki served as Deputy Press Secretary and Deputy White House Communications Director and spent the crucial years from 2013-2015 as State Department spokesperson. She was thus at the center of one of the most elaborate deceptions in the history of U.S. foreign policy. During his 2012 re-election campaign, Obama took a hard line on Iran and vowed it in his foreign policy debate with Republican opponent Mitt Romney that in any possible future negotiations with Iran, he would not settle for anything less than the end of the of their nuclear program. Saki held to that line in 2013, even though she knew that her boss, Secretary of State John Kerry, was engaging in secret negotiations with Iran, in which the United States had already abandoned almost all of its demands that Tehran and end its nuclear program and cease its enrichment of uranium. On her watch, the State Department press office doctored video of press briefings to cover up evidence that she was lying in 2013 about the existence of secret talks. More importantly, during her time at the State Department, Saki was one of the chief enablers of what Obama's Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes boasted was a media eco-chamber in which the administration manipulated the press into spreading their false claims about the nuclear deal. Lies, such as claims that inspections of Iran's nuclear facilities would take place anytime, anywhere, were promoted as facts. Nothing like, not, nothing like was in the deal. Nor did Saki give the press a heads up about the way the deal would be ultimately sealed, with the United States sending a plane load of cash to Iran. It was as part of the shocking payoff to the Ayatollahs for Obama and Kerry to get a deal at any price. It was Dennis Miller's great line. He said, $150 billion to Iran? Why not just send them an open check and then in the memo write, kill the Jews? It was Dennis Miller. Trump's spokespersons were sometimes caught defending insignificant falsehoods, like Sean Spiker's foolish defense of the president's extravagant claims about the size of the crowd at his inauguration, or problems like the separation of illegal immigrants from children at the border. But on the substance of government policy, nothing that happened from 2017 to 2020 rivaled the elaborate deceptions for Iran policy under Obama. In these, Saki played a crucial role, and media figures who have been the fiercest critics of Trump's press office said little or nothing at the time. That Saki's accession to Biden press secretary would be greeted with praise for her promise about trust and honesty rather than peals of skeptical laughter also speaks volumes about the media's partisanship. 
No presidential campaign in living memory did as much to hide its candidate from the press or to conceal his intentions about governing as that of Biden in 2020. While even in the midst of a pandemic, Trump continued to take questions from the press and submit his interviews with often hostile as well as friendly members of the media. Biden was kept away from the press during the entire campaign. At no point did he sit down with a major correspondent for a serious interview. Remember, uh, uh, it was um, Wallace. Wallace on Fox uh, wanted wanted President uh, wanted Biden to to meet with to, to sit with him for an interview. No, didn't get it. He got Trump, got the president. No, couldn't get Biden. And yet he was the one who said when he heard Biden's inaugural his inaugural address, he said it was the greatest inaugural address he's ever heard. His greatest inaugural address he's ever heard. Biden was allowed to skate to election day without ever being forced to answer whether he would try to pack the Supreme Court as his radical supporters urged or whether he would implement any of the unity task force policy recommendations agreed upon by Biden's staff and that of Democratic uh, rival Senator Bernie Sanders. He was never asked, I'm going to use the summary, he was never asked about Ukraine, he was never asked about Hunter, none of it. None of it. Transparency doesn't exist on the left. And this is the person, so we have to know, that's the first thing, you know, the, the ABCs, the olive bays of who this person is, who is now the press secretary. You know, I've been saving a line I wanted to use, a Kaylee Azavtani, you know. Lama Kaylee Azavtani, why, why Kaylee have you left us? Why have you abandoned us? Unfortunately, this is what we're stuck with. We're stuck with Jan, Jen Saki, because unfortunately Kaylee isn't there anymore. She was a press secretary that was prepared. She, she, she was ready to fight for the president. Unfortunately, unfortunately she's not there right now. We have to settle with this person. I'm going to play you a clip. Okay, it's maybe before the clip. So, what's the point here? What's the point here? The point here is, the point here is that this is the new press secretary. She is the person who is going to be the face of Biden as far as the media are concerned. Now, there's a question that I think we should ask. The question is, is now that the media don't have don't have the the um not the media don't have the republicans to to hit you know they're in the they're in the they're no longer in the opposition they're the leading party now the media don't have the, the don't have the republicans so what is going to be the media response what is going to be the media response is there going to be some sort of reformation are the media going to say okay you know we 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 are there members of the media, let's say, are there members of the media that that will be willing to cover cover the administration in some sort of honest, trend, you know, genuine light, or are we going to see perhaps a totally new style? And you know, I'm a little bit mixed. I'm a little bit undecided. I'll tell you. Uh, leading up to the election, one of the things that we saw was that there are, the Democrats and the media refused to even discuss any form of allegation because they saw that in the previous election, it, it didn't work out. When, when they talked about Hillary Clinton in any negative light, so what happened? She lost as far as they're concerned. So now this is their opportunity. They are not, they are not going to do anything that is going to result in 
they're not going to do anything that, that could that could in any way change change the attitude towards towards the administration. That that definitely seems to be it definitely seems to be their approach. They don't want to do anything to change the way that to change the to to change the perception. So there's an article written by Margaret Sullivan. Margaret Sullivan uh, wrote uh, wrote writes for WAPO, Washington Post. You're not going to believe this is an article coming out last week. Washington Post columnist. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was prepared. She was professional. She was non-combative. Why, do we, why would you have to be combative when no one's asking you a tough question, right? Okay. And she didn't peddle a whopper of a lie the way Sean Spicer did it on, on day one, four years ago, with his alternative facts about the supposedly record-breaking size of the inaugural card. Yeah, I want to just discuss that for one moment here. What is What was the record-breaking size? What was the record-breaking size? If you recall that controversy... The, the claim, the claim was that the president had the largest crowd size. Now, I, I don't know if it was the largest crowd size. It doesn't really matter to me. The point of that lie was a message. It was all, there was an underlying message. The media had never given the president, uh, uh, kudos that his crowd sizes were the largest that anybody had ever been able to achieve. Yes, Obama could bring a crowd. There's no question Obama could bring a crowd. But Trump's crowds, beat Obama's. Trump had a bigger crowd than Obama could. So they refused to acknowledge that he had any crowd and that pushed the president to maybe boast that he had a larger crowd. I don't know if it was larger. It really doesn't matter. But again, you have to, realize, it's, you have to understand where that message came from. The message came that they wanted to suggest that the president's crowd size were like were like Biden's pre the were like Biden's crowd size. The same way they, that they played down the president's crowd size leading up to the president election it's the same thing. They played down the president's crowds. And the president was able to draw a crowd. Everybody knew that. He was a rock star. He is a rock star. So that, that was that was where the that 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 initial thing that that initial confrontation came from. Was it a good tact? It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. It, 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 trust me, people didn't vote based on that lie. Okay, that they call that they call it a lie based on that confrontation, altercation, or anything. They didn't vote for Biden because of that. That's 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 foolish. The first official words by President Biden's spokeswoman included truth and transparency. Rebuilding trust with our American people will be central to our focus. The former State Department spokeswoman told a small group of socially distant socially distanced reporters that she promised they return to daily briefings. In fact, Wednesday night session with reporters, the first to the Biden administration was so normal, so weirdly normal. You could be forgiven for thinking that you had mistakenly put an, on an old episode of The West Wing, right? Because Hollywood is exactly real, real life. We all know that. This return to norms is wonderfully welcome after the horrors of the past four years. It's like running into a friend you haven't seen in four years, wrote Columbia University journalism professor William Gruskin. It's also potentially dangerous. The national press, battered by four years of abuse by the president and by the incompetence and falsehoods of his spokespeople, is in a precarious position. We run the risk of being seduced by administration. In many cases, closely reflects our values, multiculturalism, a belief in the principles of liberal democracy, a kind of wonky idealism. Cue the West Wing theme. 
She writes here in parentheses. The commentary from TV broadcasters across the board all day long was at times embarrassingly complimentary. Maybe that's fine for a day or two while everyone takes a few sighs of relief that democracy has survived its stress test. But soon, I guess, another normal return. The desire to appear combative and to blow things out of proportion to demonstrate toughness. So this is where she's going to suggest that maybe journalists are going to return to journalism. Nope. Because journalists pride themselves on being tough and objective, they like to take an adversarial-seeming approach, especially to the party in power or the candidate with whom they most identify. Again, here they're telling us, here she's telling us that this is what they did under the Obama administration. Oh, they covered him just like they covered Trump. Just like they covered Trump, just Obama wasn't combative. And of course, actually holding power to account is the most important job that journalists have. It's what we're here for. But there's a difference between truly holding power to account and grandstanding. It's the latter that gave rise to ridiculous dust-ups, like the one over President Barack Obama's wearing of a tan suit. Do we recall that one? That was his greatest crime. His greatest crime was wearing a tan suit. Not to mention the vast and shameful overplaying of the Hillary Clinton email scandal during the 2016 campaign. I don't know what the scandal was. All the evidence was destroyed and bleached. What was the scandal? They didn't even have a scandal because they couldn't because all the evidence was destroyed. The national media should show toughness, but of a different sort. If they've learned the lessons of the past four years, and I confess that I have my doubts, they'll do things differently. They will resist false equivalency. For example, they'll think twice before they put a reality-denying senator like Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley on the air to promote false claims about election fraud simply because they feel the need to balance all the truthful democratic voices. They will clearly call out lies. They will identify racism or white supremacy by using plain language instead of euphemism. Oh, because they've used so much euphemism. Because the media is filled with euphemism as opposed to real language. If you believe that now, with Trump gone, you can go back to the way things were, you will be complicit in in allowing miscreants to avoid the blame and focus they deserve and create more ground for lies and bombast, wrote Norman Ornstein, an emeritus scholar at the the American Enterprise Institute in a powerful Twitter thread. Powerful Twitter thread. He's right. By the end of the Trump administration, the national press was doing things differently and better. More than in the past, some journalists, certainly not all, were standing up for democracy without embarrassment, without fearing they'd be called partisan. But are, are they not partisan? Some had figured out to present an election not as a mere horse race, but as a question about substance, character, and the nature's future. But now that the comfortable norms have returned and the new administration is so much easier for most national journalists to like, the old journalistic norms may return too. That would be a shame. The lessons were hard won. They shouldn't be forgotten. So we are being told in this Washington Post columnist's words, that journalists were um, were not partisan in the Obama administration, and their fault lay, lies in the fact that they were even somewhat in, had they, 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 that they showed some sort of form of integrity. And now we have to be very careful to not do that, not to have some, any form of false equivalency. Now I'll play for you a very brief quip, clip where don't think for a second that this is a journalist that she is referring to. This is a journalist. Okay, this is a journalist who works for for Fox. Ducci is his name, uh, and he and he asks uh, Saki a question about Biden's 
one of his new executive orders that if you are in if you are in um, a federal federal property if you are on federal property you have to put on a mask. Of course, Biden that day was not wearing a mask. Now I don't care if we wear a mask. We know that our what our position is on the show. But listen to the exchange. Warren, President Biden and all members of the Biden family masked at all times on federal lands last night if he signed an executive order that mandates masks on federal lands at all times. At the inaugural... At the memorial, yes. I, I think, Steve, he was celebrating uh, an evening of uh, a, a historic day in our... Okay, so we'll pause for a second. That's the first answer, right? He was celebrating... A historic day. So when you're celebrating something historic, this is the first excuse. You don't have to wear a mask. Entry And certainly he signed the mask mandate because it's a way to send a message to the American public about the importance of uh, wearing masks, how it can save tens of thousands of lives. We take a number of COVID. Per- okay. Second answer. Virtue signal. It sends a message. It signals virtue. Okay. That's the second answer. The third answer, she says, is that they take a number of COVID precautions. Let's listen up. Precautions, as you know here, in terms of testing, social distancing, mask wearing ourselves, as as we do every single day. But I don't know that I have more for you on it than that. But as uh, Joe Biden often talks about, uh, it is not just important the uh, example of power, but the power of our example. Was that a good example for people who are watching who might not pay attention? Uh, normally. Well, Steve, I think uh, the power of his example is also uh, the message he sends by sign- signing 25 executive orders, including um, almost half of them related to COVID. Uh, the requirements that we're all under every single day here to ensure we're sending that message to the public. Yesterday was a historic moment in our history. He was inaugurated as president of the United States. He was surrounded by his family. We take a number of precautions, but. Okay, let's we'll pause it there. <clears throat> take a number of precautions. So if it's historic and if you take precautions, then the the rules don't really matter. I don't really care if Joe Biden wears a mask. I I, I really don't. I mean, <laughs> do they want him to die? Do they want him to live? I personally, I'll be honest, I personally think that they want him to live. We're not going to talk about that now. I personally want him to live. Uh, I'm not of the, you know, I'm not of the belief that uh, he has to have a taste tester um, because I think that they know that they can do anything with Joe Biden as their mascot. That's the rea- reality. Joe Biden is the mascot. He doesn't exist. I tell everybody, whenever people say, Joe Biden doesn't exist. Yes, he signs things, and yes, he's, a, he's the face, but he is a mascot. He is a mascot. He does not exist. So, who would, would you? why would you want to lose the mascot? What, what, what do they have to gain by losing the mascot? Anything they want to accomplish, they can accomplish with Joe Biden there. What do they need to lose the mascot? But I want to I want to actually take a different angle on this question that we asked before about how are the journalists going to cover um, the quote unquote journalists going to cover, let's say, the squad. What about the squad? Yeah, we haven't really heard too much from the squad these last days. What about Mitt Romney? You know, Mitt Romney has actually taken a little bit of an adversarial role again. He said he doesn't. Think that the that the that uh, Cruz and Harley and Hall and Holly should be expelled from the Senate. So, 
you know, what are we, what are we witnessing here? Did Mitt grow a little backbone? No. Mitt doesn't understand the game. He thinks he understands the game. He doesn't understand the game. Mitt is a, is a tool. The, 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 the left hated Mitt when he was the, when he was the, when he was the Republican nominee in 2012. Okay. He's going to, Joe Biden famously said he's going to put you all back in chains. And they went with that. They hated Mitt. Okay, where, where's the where, where's where's the radical left? Where's the radical left? You know that there there have there has been some sort of uh, you know a crackdown a little bit here and there on the radical left since the since the president since 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 the new administration was sworn in. So I'm going to suggest I'm going to suggest that you see the, the Mitt Romney on the right and and the radical left and 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 the squad on the left they were just tools. They're serving a certain purpose. They're serving a purpose for the media. The media was playing them. That doesn't mean that they're both, that they both serve the same purpose. Clearly they don't. But they both are going to find out that they were just pawns. There are two theories why I don't think AOC and her ilk are going to be dominant in, 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 in the next year plus. Yeah, maybe, maybe it'll happen, you know, as they, as they get closer to the election again. But I don't think that they're going to be dominant. First of all, you have to know that Sh- Schumer is being threat. You know, there's, there's, there's threats, you know, that maybe AOC is going to, is going to try to par- primary him. So we're going to watch how that plays out, obviously. But the media aren't interested in the radicalism. Remember what we said that the media, the media, they've installed the same people. They just really want to continue milking the system. That's all this is about. It's just milking the system. Remember, it's, 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 they're like little walking happy meals, walking on legs. The media just want to continue with milking the system. They're not interested in the radicalism, not on the same level as these radicals. That doesn't make, yeah, that doesn't make them journalists. They're just playing their role. A mixture of advocates and activists. That's what they are. They are a mixture of advocates and activists. Now, we're gonna, we're gonna question, we're gonna question whether or not which is gonna be dominant. Because we just read, you know, Margaret Sullivan. Margaret Sullivan is saying we have to be activists, be you know, not you know, be activists beyond advocates. This is going to be the question: What's going to play out? What's going? What's going to be dominant? Activists or advocates? They simply know that with a you know, so, so 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 one one theory is that they aren't they aren't really interested in the radicalism, and they were just using those people as pawns. The second is that they simply know that with as fractured of a Congress they have, they can't attempt to be too radical. Because they don't want Congress people and senators to be forced with too difficult a decision. As that can only further illustrate how little power they have. So they understand how the, how the dynamic of politics works. They don't want to push their, their, uh, their representatives into, into signing any, into, into taking a policy that's going to alienate voters. Because they know that if they do, they could end up losing Democrat Congress people's votes. They could end up having certain Democrats not vote on something, which would be which would be catastrophic. If you if you don't have party support, that would be a very bad thing. It shows it shows how weak you are. So there are different theories that I'm I'm, I'm positing here, but I, I don't I don't believe that the the radical element of the Democrat Party is going to have anywhere near as much power. They're going to try to appease them with some way, but of course the point is that they don't know that they're puppets. They don't understand that they're puppets. That's also the point. Okay. Um, you know, uh, uh, Biden, Biden, in regards, in regards to the to the 25th Amendment, moving him, and I said, I, I don't believe it's going to happen. I, this, this cute line, Biden has spent 50 years in politics. They should call it a Biden service, 
on public service. Okay, that's that's Biden is a brand. He's a goofy but smooth talking politician. Why? Yeah, we, we, it was. It, he has a certain style. He has a certain style, and they are not. And they know that they can milk that style. They know that they can milk that style. They're not interested in losing. That's in in, 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 in in losing that mascot. They're not interested in losing that mascot. Okay, so we, we you know we, we've we've done a, a little bit on uncovering on, on who this Jen Psaki is and and understanding the, the the sort of of position that the that the media are going to be taking in the coming administration. Um, maybe we'll shift briefly to to local Israel. Some some headlines here. Some headlines here, and and uh, hopefully we'll get back. We'll have some time to get back to the the, the last topic, the last topic of the day. Um. So there are there are obviously look unfor- unfortunately there's been uh, there there are obviously some headlines as far as the virus in Israel. Unfortunately, some headlines as far as the virus in Israel. It's all, it's all you know the the there we're being told that the the hospitals are are full to capacity. Full to capacity. That's what we're being told. And uh, and uh, and they're and they are announcing today that they're going to be closing the airport. The airport officially is going to be closed. I don't know if it actually passed, but it's a, apparently going to be closed for two weeks. But of course, those two weeks are expected to increase to five weeks. They're expected to incre- increase to five weeks, not uh, to the beginning of March. Uh, that's the, that's the, uh, this is coming out of Times of Israel. Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu will seek government approval on Sunday for his proposal to suspend all passenger flights to and from Israel for two weeks due to growing fears over more infectious coronavirus variants. Netanyahu held a meeting Saturday night with officials from the health ministry the Transportation Ministry, the National Security Council, and the Civil Aviation Authority, where an initial agreement was reached to essentially halt almost all flights to prevent the entry into Israel of additional coronavirus mutations, according to a statement by the Prime Minister's office. The agreement, subject to cabinet approval, includes banning all incoming and outgoing flights, restricting arrival to to Ben-Gurion International Airport, and formulating a separate plan to allow special flights for humanitarian purposes. People needing to travel may be allowed to do so in exceptional circumstances that would require the approval of a committee headed by the Directors General of the Health and Transportation Ministries, in, according to the PMO announcement. The proposal will be submitted for a cabinet approval on Sunday. The statement said that the restrictions will come into force once approved by the government, though it was not immediately clear if the majority of ministers will back them. The travel ban is set to apply to everyone. When those fully vaccinated, according to an earlier report by Channel 12, on, um, uh, to, sorry, will apply to everyone. No. Some, this, the travel ban is set to apply to everyone when those fully vaccinated. When those, I think there's a mistake here. According to an earlier report by Channel 12 News on Saturday, some health ministry officials are suggesting the airport only reopen fully when at least 5 million Israelis have been vaccinated, according to the report a scenario that may be reached by early March. 
Channel 13 reported the health ministry is asking the government to approve the use of advanced surveillance tools to track Israelis returning from overseas. Meanwhile, Israel is in the midst of a third nationwide lockdown as it seeks to curb COVID-19 infections while closely watching mutated strains and undertaking a massive vaccination campaign. Now, are we aware that they're announced, they just announced that Israel itself, Israel itself might have its own very, its, its own mutation? Israel itself it might have its own mutation. That's right. So, a lot of help it's gonna do. A lot of help it's gonna do to, to stop people from coming in. Look, obviously, we've said this here as well many times, that they're going to try to push this until they have the six million. And then we'll see. And then we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what they do. We'll see what they do. The six million vaccinated. They want to have six million vaccinated by March. We'll see what they do. There's no, we're not, we're not convinced. We're not convinced that it's going to end. It's going to end there. It's just been too easy. It's been too easy for them to continue this. It's been too easy for them to continue this. It's been too easy. But on, on, on the, on the, topic of I, I could use this topic for many things but I'm going to use it here because when we're talking about about COVID-19 okay uh, about the about the vaccines you're not gonna you're not gonna believe what I'm about to tell you it's coming out of New York Post Amazon offers Biden vaccine assistance after months of silence with Trump for all those who argue with me about how evil Jeff Bozos is he is evil. He is evil. There's no other word. Whatever your depiction of evil is, he is a villain. Jeff Bezos is a villain. There's no other, there's no other question. Of, there's nothing to talk about. You know, Jeff Bezos, Jeff Bezos, he just asked, get this one. He just asked for the, for the, um, uh, for the oh, Alabama, there's going to be some sort of vote of unionization at one of his at one of his uh, factories at distribution centers in Alabama, and they are attempting to implement mail-in ballots, mail-in voting, so that they can this is for people to be able to to vote in the in, in, in to unionize, and he is halting the vote because he says that mail-in ballots lend 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 uh, access to fraud. Could you could you imagine? Could you imagine? You you can't make this stuff up. He, Jeff Bezos, has said that mail-in ballots make fraud easier, and therefore he doesn't want the unionization of his of his factory to occur to the the vote, the vote to he, he doesn't want the vote to allow for mail-in ballots so that they don't get to have fraud. You, you can't make this up. You can't make this up, Jeff Jeff Bezos. Okay. Same person who's lobbying to have minimum wage increase to $15, which obviously is a virtue signal, and it's going to put pressure on his competition because he doesn't have the same employees as structure. He doesn't have as many employees as other, as, as other companies do. This is Jeff Bezos. Okay. Okay. So, Amazon is offering help to President Biden hast- 
a hasten distribution of COVID-19 vaccines, inviting question about whether the offer was ever made to the Trump administration. Amazon executive Dave Clark pitched the idea to Biden as soon as he took office in a Wednesday letter that also congratulated him on his inauguration. We are prepared to leverage our operations, IT and communications ability, capabilities and expertise to assist your administration's vaccine vaccination efforts. Our scale allows us to make a meaningful impact immediately, Clark wrote. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said in the Thursday interview briefing, Thursday afternoon briefing that we've had a lot of outreach, some privately, some publicly, from a range of businesses and private sector entities, and we certainly welcome that, and we'll be considering all of those efforts. Could you imagine? Well, saving lives is is paramount. There's nothing that's more important than saving lives. Where were these companies the last six weeks? A journalist pressed Saki about the timing of Amazon's offer, inquiring if the tech giant waited until Trump had left office as a political call while lives are hanging in the balance. I'm not aware of the timeline of when Amazon reached out. That sounds like a question for Amazon, Saki said. Biden has made vaccine distribution hit one of his top priorities, vowing to distribute 100 million vaccine doses in his first 100 days. The rate would slightly exceeds Trump's final week of 912,000. So the, here they are telling us that they're going to do a million doses a day. Well, the president current, current before his, in the, in the final week, he was doing 912,000 vo- doses a day. Are you going to hear that on the, on the, on the, on the national media? Are you going to, are they going to tell you that's how many doses were being done? 912,000? No. <laughs> they're going to tell you that there was an average of 500,000 a day and now there's going to be a million a day. That's their logic. Their logic is, yeah, from the very beginning until the end, it was, it was, there were there were 20 million vaccines. Divide that by the amount of 40 days. So now we have all of a sudden we have 500,000 a day. There, but obviously it was escalating. It was increasing. So there were 912,000 in his final week. Trump routinely attacked Amazon Jeff Be- Jeff, uh, CEO Jeff Bezos, who also owns the Washington Post, and called on the U.S. Postal Service to charge Amazon more to deliver packages. Clark, the Amazon executive who pitched Biden on the idea, was responsible for a December letter to the Center of Disease Control and Prevention that sought help in gaining access to the vaccine for the company's workers. Clark wrote to Biden that Amazon's help could be a game changer. Our scale allows you to make a meaningful impact immediately in the fight against COVID-19. Why couldn't that immediate impact have happened under Trump? Aren't we told that saving lives is the most important? And we stand ready to assist you in this effort. You can't make this up. You can't make this up. Since the beginning of this crisis, we have worked hard to keep our workers safe. We are committed to assisting your administration's vaccination efforts as we work together to protect our employees and continue to provide essential services during the pandemic. The e-commerce and cloud computing giant has one of the most sophisticated distribution and shipping operations in the country. Jeff Bezos purchased the Washington Post in 2013 for $250 million. The newspaper had a fraught relationship with Trump, who called the paper an expensive lobbyist for Amazon. The Trump Justice Department probed Amazon for over antitrust concerns. Steve Mnuchin defended the investigation in a 2019 CNBC appearance, arguing Amazon has destroyed the retail industry across the United States. In a 2019 Medium post, Bezos defended his ownership of the paper, writing, My ownership of the Washington Post is a complexifier for me. It It's unavoidable that certain powerful people who experience Washington Post news coverage will wrongly conclude I am their enemy. He added, my stewardship of the Post and my support of its mission, which will remain unswerving, is something I will be most proud of when I'm 90 and reviewing my life, if I'm lucky enough to live that long, regardless of any complexities it creates for me. 
A rep for Amazon did not immediately respond to the post request for comment on correspondence with the Trump administration on whether the company offered Trump support on vaccine distribution. Reached by NBC News, an Amazon rep said the company had been in touch last month with the CDC, but would not say whether the company had made the same overtures to Trump. In a tweet posted Thursday afternoon, Amazon's public policy team defended their conduct, saying, actually, we didn't wait. We offered the Trump administration assistance on vaccines, build new tools for researchers and public health authorities, engage Operation Warp Speed on logistics and advising and testing, and flew in PPE from China when America needed it most. You know, this is Amazon. They have no problem offering their help to Trump. No problem, no problem offering their help to, to the Biden administration, despite the fact, despite the fact That it's a matter of saving lives, we're told. That's what we're told. I, I get, I get, I can't tell you. I have to. I need a drink. I need a drink. Something, something hard after I talk about that, that story. It's, it's so aggravating, you know. Between the mail-in ballots that are to, that we're told are fraudulent, fraudulent. They lend. Uh, an increase, they, they, they increase fraud if you allow mail in ballots. So they shouldn't allow mail in ballots. That is what he said. That is what he said. And yet 80 million ballots are sent to Americans and we're just supposed to accept the election results. And if you talk about election fraud, you're going to be ousted. We're not going to have time today to talk about the next, the, 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 the other issue I wanted, I prepared. There's just no, there just isn't time. Well, maybe we have to save it for tomorrow. Um, there's another article, another article. This also, I I, uh, I wanted to mention. It's short. The the troops, the troops who are being abused, the troops that are being abused on the the National Guard troops, the National Guard troops that are being abused. Okay, they were they were they were forced into a five thousand, I believe, were forced to to share two bathrooms, one outlet, while they were living in a garage. Every all these these Congress people and senators they posed for pictures and then they were sent and then they were sent to to live underground. Well, the OAN reported President Trump offers his D.C. hotel to National Guard troops who were kicked out of Capitol building. President Trump gave thousands of National Guard troops permission to stay at his Trump hotel in Washington D.C. after Capitol police kicked them out of the Capitol building. On Thursday, 5,000 guardsmen and women brought in to protect Joe Biden's inauguration were forced to take shelter in an underground parking garage after they were told to vacate the building. The move garnered intense backlash after it was revealed the soldiers were forced to sleep on the ground in freezing temperatures and had just one bathroom as well as one power outlet to share. On Friday, an advisor told AOAN that President Trump stepped in by informing the troops they could stay at his luxury hotel near the Capitol. Upon seeing the situation, lawmakers from both sides of the aisle demanded the unit be brought back inside. Well, I don't want to go out on a limb, but let me say this. Whatever blockhead in the United States Senate decided that the National Guard has to sleep in the parking garage should be sleeping in the parking garage themselves, tonight, said Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois. It's unclear... Democrat, obviously, but, you know, he's just posturing here. It's unclear who gave the initial order, but some Republicans are pointing the finger at Nancy Pelosi, who has remained silent on the issue. 
Meanwhile, several state governors have ordered their troops to return home. New Hampshire, Texas, governor, they are, so that's what the president, that's what the president does. Because he actually cares about them. He actually cares about them. He has offered his hotel, his hotel, he has offered his hotel for the, for the troops because he wants them, he wants them to be comfortable and not sleeping in freezing temperatures of a parking garage. Oh yeah, so sad. It's so very sad. We have to talk about it. You can't, you can't leave it alone. We have to talk about it. That's the point. We have to talk about it. We have to expose it. We can't, we can't, you know, when you see, when you see something wrong taking place, you have to scream. You have to scream. That's our job. That's what we have to do. We ended up today, uh, Larry King, Larry King died. Uh, over the over the weekend, he died with COVID, or at least from complications. They claim, I don't know to what extent. He was hospitalized at some point after Thanksgiving. Uh, his funeral um, will there will there there won't be any attendees at his funeral because it's going to be closed off to wives and ex-wives, and so uh, there won't be enough people allowed to enter. To, to come to his to come to his funeral. That was a little joke there. Uh-huh. Um that was a little joke. So he so look, they, uh Larry King was eighty seven years old. Larry King was eighty seven years old and um and he uh he had, was known for his ability to interview. I'm gonna play a, a clip where he was interviewed by Dave Rubin and he was talking about about what he does. Let's listen to this clip here. Looking back, is there anything you would have done differently? Career wouldn't have gotten married as much. I would have gone national sooner. I had the talent. But I was a big fish in a smaller What's pond. What's it all about? I've asked you this. I've asked you some version of this many times Every day. I What's do it all two about, things. my friend? What's it all about and what does it all mean? What does it mean? A hundred years from today, who's going to care? <laughs> right? John Lowenstein once hit a grand slam home run for the Orioles to beat the Yankees. And the crowd went crazy. Someone said, John, how does it feel? And he said, a hundred million Chinese don't give a damn. What does it all mean? The answer is, I don't know. All right, my friend. Well, despite the fact that you did not wear suspenders today, which I'm wasn't it? I think it was maybe this one. Small. Pond in Miami. 
and I liked that. I had radio, television, column in the Miami Herald, you know. Everybody knew me in Miami. I never sent a tape to New York. Right. I should have. I would have liked to have gone national sooner. Just just to have more success earlier, you think? Yeah, to appeal to more people, because I, I had something. I knew I was good. I knew I was good at what I did. And I I didn't really get well-known until my 50s, and I think it could have happened in the 30s. I'm not any better than I was in the 30s. I'm not better today than I was when I was in my late 20s. I was all, see, I always was curious. I always let my... My part. Okay, this is the this is the actual. But look, I've had so many years doing this, Dave, and I can't explain how I still love it. I love the interplay. Yeah. You should love what you do. Yeah. My you know why? You learn something every day. Every day, you learn. So I can't be closed-minded. Like I'm a liberal politically, yeah. certainly in social issues. But I'm not close-minded enough to think that you can't have an opposing view. I like the argument. I like the discussion. But in interviewing, I never, I leave my ego at the door. I try not to use the word I. It's irrelevant. And I tried to get into walk in the other, you know, Edward Bennett Williams, the great lawyer, told me once, I said, what is the role of the criminal defense lawyer? He said to get one person on the jury to walk in your client's shoes. Hmm. If you can get one person to walk in your client's shoes, you've got a hung jury. All he has to do is say, I would have done that. So Larry King, who Dave Rubin, throughout his political evolution, has called his mentor, one of his strongest supporters. Larry King defined himself as a liberal who was prepared to give the uh, his whoever it was the ability to speak he didn't believe in silencing him he didn't believe that only there was only room for one opinion and uh hopefully hopefully we can take that away from from Larry hopefully we can learn something from him as far as allowing for tolerance of thought argument debate conversation something that uh, I think Larry has the ability to teach us that has been our show today that has been our show today I am your host Ali Shapiro this has been the, the morning mix we hope you have a great day and please God we'll be with you again tomorrow <laughs>